Good morning and welcome to Echoes of Calvary. This is your host, Greg Sweeting. Thank you for opening your home to us this morning. I invite you to now open your hearts and worship with us as we share from the Word of God. Stay with us as we share comments and illustrations with a spiritual application, present special music to call us to worship, and in a few minutes, Pastor Alan Lee will come to share insights from Scripture and explain how to apply God's Word that we might grow to be complete in Christ. The big news over the week during which I was preparing this particular Echoes of Calvary recording actually depended on where you happened to live. In the Bahamas, it was all about BEC, surcharges, blackouts, or parliamentary debates on gaming, among other things. In America, the news was about ISIS, about the beheadings, and the president's decision to bomb the enemy's installations with France agreeing to join, and bomb those installations as well. In the UK, the big news was the referendum on Scotland's proposed independence. This particular debate had been going on for two years, and Prime Minister David Cameron allowed there to be a referendum to settle the issue once and for all, at least for the next decade or so, he said. The people of Scotland turned out in record numbers to record their choice, either to remain a part of the United Kingdom or to break away and become an independent nation. At the time of the referendum, the Union consisted of Wales, England, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Scotland had been a part of this Union for more than 300 years. I watched a lot of the discussion between the yes crowd, those who wanted to break away, and the no crowd, those who wanted to remain in the Union. There were persuasive arguments on both sides, but being a traditionalist myself, I was saddened to think of the UK being changed and Scotland setting off on a separate pathway to independence. I also read other opinions in various publications with the result that I became convinced that one of the prime motivators for many Scottish people centered on oil. Money, in other words. They felt that as an independent nation they would inherit the North Sea oil reserves, most of which lie in Scottish territory. They would also be able to ban Britain's nuclear fleet, which presently makes its home in Scottish ports. Finally, they don't like to be subject to the UK Parliament, which is in England. I have probably oversimplified the issues, but this was how I looked at this major news story out of the UK. As we now know, the majority of those record numbers of Scottish residents that flooded the polling stations that significant day in September chose to remain a part of the United Kingdom. About 55% said they wanted to remain British. 45% voted for independence. Still a very large number. As a result, Westminster will have to be very careful to listen to the people of Scotland, both camps. While the majority still said they wanted to stay, a very large number signalled their desire to see a major change in the way the UK government treats the people of Scotland. Mr Cameron said that he had heard them, all of them. Time will reveal how sincere he was. I couldn't help but wonder how all this change, upheaval and posturing might fit into God's master plan for the earth. As we draw near to his return, things shift and change in preparation for that event, which will come. God is still on the throne directing and influencing the affairs of men. He watches as governments deal with the people whom they have appointed to govern them, 
and we must all give an account one day, including government ministers and even prime ministers.
Ryan now with his message for today. Here is Senior Pastor Emeritus, Alan Lee. Greetings again in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are continuing with our series on the Beatitudes, which I have subtitled, Jesus' Profile of a True Believer. We are looking at the second Beatitude, which is found in verse 4 of Matthew 5, which is a fantastic portion of the Word of God, to say the least. The verse reads as follows, quote, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. End of quote. Now, we have in our last message, and based on biblical as well as historical uses, found that to be blessed of God means to be approved of God so that one experiences an inner state or condition of tranquility and peaceful contentment regardless of outward circumstances. And so this blessedness spoken of here is not simple or mere happiness. It goes beyond that. Happiness, as we mentioned previously, is based on happenings around us. If these happenings are favorable, one is happy. If they are not, one is unhappy. However, blessedness transcends happenings and rests on one's relationship with God. Now, this second beatitude describes the necessary result of this brokenness we spoke about in Beatitude 1, and that is a state or attitude of mourning. Because, as we mentioned in our introduction of the series, these traits build upon and flows from one another. They do not exist in isolation of the others. They make up one coherent profile of a true believer as envisioned by Jesus Christ himself. A state of inner tranquility, Jesus says, is the blessed experience of those who, because of a broken and contrite spirit, are led into an attitude of mourning, and as a result, establish a relationship with God that causes him or her to manifest an attitude of godly sorrow over sin. Based on this, I have entitled this beatitude, The Blessings of Godly Sorrow. So, following the statement of promised blessing, Jesus next states the demanded or necessary trait. He says, Blessed are those who mourn. Now, literally, this may be translated, Blessed are those who weep and feel deep sorrow, because that's the meaning of the Greek word translated mourn. The specific word used here is the most intense expression for sorrow or remorse used in the New Testament. It indicates a deep-seated inner state or attitude of sadness. The Bible gives several reasons or causes for proper or godly mourning. First, for bereavement. Jesus himself exemplifies this. John 11.35 says that Jesus wept at the graveside of Lazarus. Now, the text literally reads, Jesus burst out in tears, or perhaps Jesus burst out crying. This was and is a proper cause for sorrow or mourning at the death of a loved one. But second, it's also a proper use for sorrow for discouragement in the ministry. Paul, for instance, writing to his young protege, Timothy, who was experiencing severe opposition in his ministry, this is what he says to him. 
I am reminded of your many tears. That's in 2 Timothy 1, verses 3 and 4. Now notice, Paul does not reprimand him for this, but rather assures him of his love, his prayers, and his concern. Psychologists tell us that, and I quote this, the human body has developed tear ducts in order to release the tension that comes because of sorrow and disappointments in life. And without the ability to release this tension, we would all be nervous wrecks or basket cases. End of quote. Now, isn't that amazing, this being the case? There are scientists who say that all of this happened by chance. No, my friends, God knew exactly what he was doing when he created tears and tear ducts. He created them not only as a release for tension and sorrow, but also for the expression of joy and happiness. The book of Revelation tells us that God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Now, for a while, I was puzzled over this, really. I asked myself, does this refer to every tear absolutely or only to every tear of sorrow and pain? But that, in fact, we would still have the ability to express joy with tears in heaven. But then I thought again, if this were so, then we would spend eternity crying over the joy and happiness we were experiencing living in the New Jerusalem in the midst of the persons of the triune God themselves. So I have concluded God will, in fact, wipe away, as he said, every tear, absolutely. No more need for tear ducts. But the Bible also reveals that one can properly cry and sorrow over unfulfilled desires. For instance, this was true in the case of Hannah, as she grieved over her barrenness. In 1 Samuel 1, 8, the text says, Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Bereavement, discouragement, unfulfilled desires. These are some of the cause for proper and godly sorrow. However, the Bible also gives us examples where these very causes can be causes for improper and even sinful mourning. For instance, there is bereavement for those without hope. Paul exhorts believers to be careful how they mourn over the homegoing of another believer. Listen to his words in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, for instance, quote, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, that is, you may not mourn, as do the rest who have no hope. End of quote. Believers are to mourn and sorrow over the absence of their loved ones who have died with faith in Christ, but they are not to do so with an attitude of hopelessness or desperation. That is left for unbelievers, not for believers to do. Believers are to regard the passage of another believer as a home-going, which, even in the midst of sorrow, is a cause of rejoicing in Christ, rather than as a mere funeral dirge or wake, which is a cause for deep distress and hopelessness. Now, the Bible also shows that one should not mourn over unfulfilled sinful desires. This is well illustrated in the actions of the Israelites concerning the food they left behind in Egypt. In Numbers 11, at verse 4, it says, and the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. 
And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. End of quote. They were mourning in a sinful manner for the wrong things. This was a sinful reason for mourning. They should have been satisfied with the food God himself had provided for them. It was also sinful for Amnon to mourn over the fact that he could not have sexual relations with his sister Tamar. The Bible says, quote, He laid upon his bed and wept, mourned, because he could not fulfill this sinful desire. It was also sinful for Ahab to mourn over the fact that he could not have his neighbor's field or property. This story is recorded in 1 Kings 21. After hearing the rejection of his request to obtain the piece of property, verse 4 says, and I quote, So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. End of quote. He mourned because he could not get his neighbor's property. All of these instances are instances of ungodly or worldly sorrow and is forbidden for any Christian, and for that matter, anyone else to do. The Apostle Paul describes the results of godly sorrow, I believe, in 2 Corinthians 7, where he refers to a severe letter he had sent to the believers. Listen carefully to what he says. I am not sorry that I send that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have, so you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. End of quote. So this is a godly sorrow that Paul says is a proper kind of sorrow or mourning for believers. Now, I say again, this passage defines the kind of sorrow Jesus is talking about in the second beatitude. It also describes its results in the life of believers in whom it is manifested. It is the emotional response of a person who is truly poor in spirit. Verse 10 tells us that it is a sorrow that is according to the will of God. It is a repentance that leads to salvation. Several things here. First, there is no conversion without conviction of sin. Second, there's no conviction of sin unless genuine sorrow is experienced. And finally, these principles apply to both the Christian and the non-Christian. Godly sorrow is a part of genuine repentance. 
verse 11 tells us that such sorrow is accompanied with a spiritual earnestness or zeal, meaning that sensitivity towards sin drives us to devotion to God. It is also a vindication of our profession of faith. Our ongoing lifestyle demonstrates our inner attitude towards sin. That's the way it should be. Is this true of you? Do you show sorrow over sin in another believer's life? Paul did it. Nehemiah did it. Isaiah did it. And so should we. Do you show sorrow over those who do not know Christ? Paul did it. For instance, he said in Romans 9.1, I have continual sorrow in my heart for my brethren in the flesh. And the psalmist says in Psalm 126 verses 5 and 6, Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with a shout of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. End of quote. Finally, notice the basis for the blessing in this beatitude. It says, for they shall be comforted. Notice the comfort comes from God, not because we mourn but because of God's response to our godlike attitude towards sin, not our mourning. Listen carefully. We are comforted not because of what we do, but because of what God does. This is true in all of the Beatitudes. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the blessing is promised because of what we do. But that little preposition in the text 4 tells us otherwise. In the case of these Beatitudes, God blesses us because of what he does for us, not because of what we do for him. What then should be our response to these two Beatitudes which describe the character of a true believer? First, spiritual brokenness before God that continues to manifest itself in our life as a hatred and sorrow towards sin in and around us. I believe Paul gives us the answer in 2 Corinthians 13.5. This is what he says, quote, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? End of quote. So let me ask you as we close. Have you experienced a genuine spiritual brokenness and repentance before God? Do you have a sorrow for personal sin and sin around you? Jesus says these are two traits of a genuine believer. Do you have them? Let me ask you once again. If you were to use these two Beatitudes as a standard for your testing, your profession of faith in Christ... Would you pass the test? As always, this is Senior Pastor Emeritus Alan Lee saying, Sila, think and act on these things. Unworthy, yet a happy 
Savior comes from heaven when his blessed face we see. You have been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship service begins this morning at 11 o'clock in the sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We extend an invitation to you to join us on these occasions. If you would like to contact the church or Pastor Lee, address your letters to Echoes of Calvary, Post Office Box N1684, Nassau, Bahamas. And so we come to an end of this broadcast. I invite you to think about the message this morning. Consider the one who is our Savior and Lord. Grow to be complete in Him. And remember, as echoes from Calvary stir in your heart, keep listening for that shout, Maranatha, the Lord is coming soon. There forevermore to stay, hold the fort a little longer, in your struggle over sin, trust the great commander's promise, he will surely come again. Happen in a moment, Jesus Christ could come again. I am listening every morning for the mighty trumpet sound. What a time we'll have together when the saints shall leave the ground. Christ could come again.